if you're here today and you just feel like there's no hope and you are so desperate that you're about to lose your mind, about to lose your marbles, and you've already lost your appetite because of all the stress that you're under, Jesus says to you right now, come here, let's talk. Tell me what's on your mind. What's going on in that little heart of yours? Let me ask you this morning, what's going on in that little heart of yours today? Isn't it amazing? I mean, God listens to us. He cares about what's going on in our hearts. So maybe we shouldn't be so flippant about prayer, huh? The infinitely glorious God says, you have my ear. Let's talk. The infinitely glorious God says, what's troubling you? Tell me about it. The infinitely glorious God says, what's going on in that little heart of yours? Let's talk. I love that about Jesus. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll be reminded again about how welcoming Jesus is. How welcoming he is as our great high priest. How he listens to our prayers. How he's merciful to us. How he cares about us. And how he showers sinners with rain and grace. And so our big idea today is simply this. Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Fall on your knees. Tell him your needs. That's what Elijah will do in our passage because they haven't seen rain for three and a half years. There's been a severe drought in Israel because God's people have gone off and worshipped the false god Baal. But as we saw last week, after the Lord publicly humiliated Baal on Mount Carmel, it seems that the people have repented and God is about to send some much needed rain. Grace is going to fall like rain from a little cloud that looks like a man's hand. So turn in 1 Kings chapter 18, because sometimes clouds look like things, don't they? Ask Charlie Brown, right? 1 Kings chapter 18, look at verse 41 and hear the word of the Lord. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And Elijah said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And Elijah said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. 
So recall from last week that the Lord, Yahweh, Israel's God, had utterly humiliated the false god Baal and his lover, the god Ashtoreth, on top of Mount Carmel. And after that, Elijah took the false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, 850 of them, down to the brook Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. And so we pick up the story, and Elijah is back on top of Mount Carmel. So Elijah sends King Ahab on a lunch break and tells him to get up and eat and drink. I'm not sure why, honestly. Perhaps this was a celebrative meal because God was restoring His covenant blessings and about to send rain upon His people. Or it could be that Elijah actually cares about King Ahab. I mean, imagine that. King Ahab has led the nation of Israel into idolatry, and yet Elijah cares and reminds him to go eat dinner because it's been a long day on top of Mount Carmel. Elijah extends grace to a very, very bad king. We'll come back to this idea in a little bit. But whatever the case may be, King Ahab is exhorted to finish his lunch while Elijah goes off to pray. You may notice, too, that the text doesn't explicitly say that Elijah prayed. However, his posture of bowing down to the ground and putting his face between his knees lets us know that he was, in fact, praying. So you have to read between the lines here. You have to read between the knees, if you will, and you'll see that. This wasn't a yoga class. Elijah is not doing downward dog So the language of the text does not say that Elijah is praying, but the body language of Elijah tells us that he is praying. And what does Elijah's body language say? It says, I am helpless without you, Lord. And that's the starting place of prayer. I am utterly and totally helpless, Lord. I need you, help. This is the posture of humility before the Lord. Understand, they have not had rain for three and a half years. This was a very real need. They were desperate. And it's a picture to remind us of just how desperate and needy we are. Grace, do you understand that we are always a weak and needy people? I don't care how much money we have in the bank as a church. I don't care how well-staffed we are. We are always weak and needy. And we need to remember that. But here's what's so interesting about this passage. Yahweh had already promised to send rain back in verse 1 of chapter 18. He said, I will send rain upon the earth. Notice the Lord had promised Elijah that he would send the rain, but Elijah did not sit back and wait on it. He did not let go and let God, which is terrible theology, by the way. He got down on his knees and prayed He was moved to action, even though Yahweh had already promised that he would send the rain. Old Testament commentator Ronald Wallace says, We are meant to notice in this incident that even though God had already promised to send rain and was going to do so, he nevertheless waited till Elijah prayed earnestly for it to happen. 
in the Bible, it always seemed to be of real pleasure and value to God to do things for his people on earth if he could first stir up people to pray for these things. And so understand this grace. God actually delights to answer our prayers. It actually brings him pleasure when we pray. I say that God delights in it because this is often how he works in his world. Prayers are often the means to the end of what God wants to do. Now, of course, God could just do what he wants to do in this world because he's God and he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's in control. He can do whatever he wants to do. But he invites us into his story to participate with him in his world He invites us into his plans, and he often uses our prayers to accomplish his will. Why? Because God simply delights in the prayers of his people. That's what Proverbs 15.8 says. The Lord abhors the sacrifices of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Wow! The Hebrew actually reads, the prayer of the upright is his pleasure. The prayer of the Christian is his pleasure. And you thought Chick-fil-A came up with all of that my pleasure business. God said it first, Proverbs 15. And when you pray to God and you pour your heart out to him and you ask him for things, he says, my pleasure, just like Chick-fil-A. That means that your prayers, Christian, bring God pleasure. Think about that. Your prayers and my prayers, our prayers, however weak and juvenile they are, they bring God pleasure. It brings Him tremendous pleasure when you bring your needs to His attention. Think about that. That ought to make you want to pray. It ought to make you want to fall on your knees and tell him your needs. It brings God pleasure when we alert him to our needs. He loves it. He actually enjoys it. God loves to see you, Christian, come to him through his son and bring your needs to his attention. The prayers of the upright please the Lord and bring delight to him. Why? Because our helplessness in prayer brings glory to Him as the sovereign, sufficient God who meets our needs. Do you want to glorify Jesus, Christian? I hope you do because that should be the heartbeat of every Christian, to glorify God. So do you want to glorify God? Here's how you do it. Acknowledge your dependence on Him. Admit your weakness and run to Him. And ask Him for help and pray. And when you tell Jesus what's going on in that little heart of yours, it glorifies Him. When you ask Jesus for help, it glorifies Him. When you talk to Him, it delights Him. He takes pleasure out of listening to you talk. Wow, think about that. 
He enjoys listening to you. Some people don't enjoy listening to you, by the way. That's coming as a shock to some of you. Sorry to ruin your life, but there are people that don't like your voice, the tone of your voice, the pitch, everything about you. They don't like listening to your voice. But God does. It honors Him. Doesn't that spark a desire in you to pray? Suddenly, prayer can be exciting. Even when God doesn't answer your prayers right away, or even when God doesn't answer your prayers at all, or even when you have to pray seven times to get the answer. So look at verse 43. And Elijah said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And Elijah said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, his servant said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Notice that Elijah didn't pray once and then determine that it was God's will to not send rain. He was persistent. Seven times he sent his servant to go look out over the Mediterranean Sea to see if there were any rain clouds forming. And then on the seventh trip, the servant returns and says there's this gigantic hand-shaped cloud moving toward them. And so God answered Elijah's prayer. Elijah's seventh prayer. Seven prayers to get an answer. It's crucial for us to understand. We don't know when God will answer a prayer. Sometimes he does it immediately like he did with the widow's son who was dead back in 1 Kings 17 and Elijah prayed for him. He came back to life. Or like we saw last week when Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel. The Lord sent fire and publicly humiliated the false god Baal. Sometimes God answers quickly. And sometimes he takes his time. Sometimes you're like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, I prayed three times and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. We never know when the 499 prayers have gone answered and then all of a sudden it's the 500th prayer that will be the one that God answers. That's why we can't give up. Just as we confessed in our catechism question earlier. This is God's providence and sovereignty in constructing our worship service today. We were reading about this. Question 39. With what attitude should we pray? With love, perseverance, and gratefulness. In humble submission to God's will, knowing that for the sake of Christ, He always hears our prayers. He always hears our prayers. You can file that under grace. It's pure grace that he hears our prayers. And that's exactly what was happening when a cloud that looked like a man's hand was coming out of the Mediterranean Sea. Look again at verse 44. And at the seventh time, the servant said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Elijah told Ahab to get in his chariot and get down the mountain. Why does he do this? I think Elijah does it so that Ahab's chariot won't get stuck in the mud once it starts raining cats and dogs. I think it's an act of grace. King Ahab certainly 
didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve to be tipped off early. If I was Elijah, because I'm the rotten sinner, if I was Elijah, I would have let Ahab get stuck in the mud or experience a mudslide down Mount Carmel because King Ahab was terrible. But maybe it was an act of grace. Perhaps Elijah still had respect for the authority of King Ahab, even though he had abandoned Yahweh. You see, this is just how grace works. It comes to rotten people who don't deserve it. That's how grace works. God's grace comes to rotten, sinful people who do not deserve it at all. Ahab and his kingdom will get grace like rain from a cloud that looks like a man's hand, and Ahab doesn't deserve it. And neither do we. Ahab didn't deserve this at all. He had led the nation in Baal worship. He turned away from Yahweh. He should have been slaughtered on Mount Carmel, along with the prophets of Baal. But the Lord extends grace to Ahab. Hallelujah, grace like rain falls down on sinners. Ahab doesn't deserve any of this. But that's the scandalous nature of grace, isn't it? The worst get the best. We get the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect life, and we don't deserve a drop of it. He died for us, for our sins. And we get imputed and credited with his righteousness. This is why grace is amazing. And I hope you never get over it. Bad people get God's best and they don't deserve it, nor can they earn it. Grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies. People who are unthankful, ungrateful, unworthy, and unlovable. People who are just plain rotten. People just like you and me. Now isn't this a strange passage? God showers bad people with grace. I just can't get over that. I can't get over it. And then another strange thing happens in our passage too. The rain clouds are looming in this cloud that looks like a man's hand. And Ahab takes off in his chariot. And then suddenly, like Olympic gold medalist and the fastest man in the world, Usain Bolt, Elijah takes off running ahead of King Ahab in his chariot. Elijah gathers up his long robes and he runs 17 miles to Jezreel. For 17 miles, Elijah runs ahead of King Ahab's chariot. 17 miles, he outruns King Ahab. So what does this strange text mean to teach us? I think there's something more significant here. Even more than just a miracle that a prophet ran 17 miles ahead of a chariot. I think this is what it's saying. Since God had obviously empowered Elijah to run fast ahead of King Ahab. Notice the phrase in verse 46. It says, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Since God has obviously empowered Elijah to run fast ahead of King Ahab. God was painting a picture based on both of their prospective offices. 
Ahab was the king and Elijah was the prophet. And as the prophet, Elijah was the mouthpiece for the Lord. He represented the word of Yahweh to the nation of Israel. So God was letting Ahab see before his eyes through this running man, Elijah, who represented the word of God. God was letting Ahab see that Ahab must follow the word of God. The word of the Lord must be what Ahab follows, just as he was following Elijah to Jezreel. I think Yahweh was placing a decision before Ahab for 17 miles. The people had ignored God's word. They had chosen to worship Baal. And then on Mount Carmel, Baal was defeated. So what would Ahab choose now? He's got 17 miles to think about this. Would he recognize Yahweh as the sovereign Lord and return to worship him? Or would he continue following his own ideas? That's what we, why we have the picture of Elijah. The mouthpiece for the Lord, the bearer of the word of God running before King Ahab. Will the king follow God's word now? Will Ahab humble himself and open the empty hands of faith to receive God's grace? So Elijah running faster than Ahab's chariot is the Old Testament version of James chapter 4 verses 6 through 8 which says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what Ahab is being called to here, to submit to God's word, to resist the devil, to draw near to Yahweh, to cleanse his hands and purify his heart. Yahweh would give more grace to Ahab, but he needed to truly repent and to return to and follow the word of God. Yahweh was ready to restore Ahab in the nation of Israel. In fact, Yahweh is always ready to restore and renew his people. The problem is with us. God, he's ready to shower his people with renewal and blessing. The question is, are we ready for this? Are we ready, Grace, to allow Jesus to totally upend our lives and bring this kind of upheaval into our lives that disrupts everything that we think and to bring the renewal that we desperately need? Jesus is always ready to renew a church. The question is, are we ready? Will we get low before the Lord? Not just on a couple of Sundays because we've preached about it. Will we get low and stay low? Jesus is always ready to renew a church. And so a church that is filled with this kind of James 4 humility that's open to Jesus, that church is revival ready. Let's stay revival ready. If we get low before the Lord and we humble ourselves, He will renew us. Grace will flow down to us. The old Presbyterian pastor, Jack Miller, said, he's the guy that popularized the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. He's the one who really made that popular. He said this, grace flows downhill. 
It runs down from the heights of God to the humble at the foot of the mountain. Grace always takes away fear and reveals the mighty, tender, compassionate securities of God. As you humble yourself, you will find fears fading away like the morning mist. Believe. Only believe. If we humble ourselves here, Jesus will take away our fears. And he will reveal his mighty, tender, compassionate securities. But we have to embrace our weakness to experience this. And so prayer is just proof that you believe you're weak. Prayer is simply just proof that you've accepted the fact, I am weak. Prayer is just proof that you really believe that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So look to God. To look to God and to lift up your eyes to Jesus is an act of humility. To look to God is to admit that you're not in control. To look to God is to admit that, quite frankly, you're an idiot compared to Him and His wisdom, right? To look to God is to bend the proud knee and acknowledge that you are helpless without Him, helpless without His grace. To look to God is to position yourself to be a recipient of His grace. This is the posture that grace moves toward, to which grace is drawn, because grace flows downhill. And so like a magnet, God's grace is drawn to a bended knee, to eyes that are lifted up. God's grace is attracted to helplessness. And that's really all prayer is, isn't it? Prayer is just humility Put into words. Prayer is just humility expressing itself. Late uh, Norwegian pastor Ole Halesby said this. He said, Note here what prayer is. He's commenting on Jesus, on Mary, Jesus' mother, saying, They're out of wine. Can you help? Which he goes on to say is like the best prayer in the Bible. They're out of prayer. Can you help? I mean, they're out of wine. Can you help? Commenting on that passage, he says, Note here what prayer is. To pray to Jesus is to tell Jesus what we lack. I think we can all see how different our prayer life would be if we would only learn this aspect of the holy art of prayer with which the mother of Jesus was familiar. To most of us, prayer is burdensome because we have not learned that prayer consists in telling Jesus what we or others lack. We do not think that that is enough. Instinctively, we feel that to pray cannot be so easy as all that. For that reason, we rise from prayer many times with heavy hearts. All this is changed when we, like the mother of Jesus, learn to know him so well that we feel safe when we have left our difficulties with him. What is prayer? It's simply crying, help That's prayer, just telling Jesus what we lack, telling Jesus what we want, telling Jesus what we need. Help! It hasn't rained for three and a half years. Help! That's what Elijah did. Help! Seven times. Elijah had Yahweh's full attention on top of Mount Carmel. Think about that. And that's what happens when we pray. It's as if you are the only person in the world talking to Jesus at that moment. When you pray, 
when and if you prayed this morning, it was as if Jesus stopped everything that he was doing and he looked at you and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus just sat there and listened to you as if you were the only person who had his ear. And that happens every single time you pray. Complete, undivided attention. That's prayer. It's having God's complete, undivided attention. Prayer is Jesus looking at you and saying, what do you want me to do for you? Wow, that kind of makes you want to pray, doesn't it? You can have God's complete, undivided attention. The God who created Saturn, I mean, think about this, the God who created Saturn and all of the universe, when you pray, he stops and listens to you as if you were the only person in the universe talking to him. Complete, undivided attention. Wow. If that doesn't shock you and give you goosebumps, then you don't understand grace because you're a really rotten person. And God listens to you. Wow. So take heart today. If you are a Christian, you're not an orphan. You're not alone as you go through what you're going through right now. You have not been abandoned. You are not facing anything in your life alone because Jesus is with you. It may seem like you've been abandoned, but you haven't. You may not understand why what is happening is happening in your life, but you can trust Him. You may not be getting your prayers answered the way you want, but you're God's child and you can trust your Heavenly Father. If you're here today and you feel like there's no hope and you're so desperate you're about to lose your mind, lose your marbles, maybe you've already lost your appetite because of all the stress you're under, Jesus says to you today, come here, let's talk. Tell me what's on your mind. You know, you're my favorite kind of people. I like needy people. What's going on in that little heart of yours? Charles Spurgeon said, The tender heart of Jesus waits to hear our griefs. Let us pour them into his patient ear. What griefs do you need to pour into Jesus' ear this morning? What's weighing down your heart right now? The tender heart of Jesus is waiting. So go ahead and pour out all your troubles no matter how big or how small, into the patient ear of Jesus. I tell my kids all the time, I ask them, have you prayed about it? Whatever it is. Someone lost a significant amount of money this week and misplaced it. Have you prayed about it? Pray about it. God cares. They found that significant amount of money. Stuck in between a couple of uh, disc uh, like games, like little boxes that you keep the DVDs or the CDs for games in. It was stacked in between there. We looked all through that dresser drawer trying to find it. It was there the whole time. He prayed and he found it. Tell your kids, parents, all the time. And parents, you do it too. Pray about it. Have you prayed about it? God cares. Prayer is just asking Jesus for help. That's all prayer is. You can do that, right? Just ask Jesus for for help. If you struggle to pray and you think, man, I stink at prayer. All you can do is say, help. There have been times in my life where I just laid in bed and said, help, help, help. I didn't know what else to pray, but help. Prayer is just taking all of your needs, all of your problems, all of your cares, and putting them into words. Your prayers don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be eloquent. You just talk. 
Don't worry about getting the words right. Don't start saying, oh, okay, what's that acronym? ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I got to follow that. And then you get there in prayer and you're like, oh, Jesus, help. Bro. You just spill it out and you're like, oh, I didn't start with adoration. He's probably not going to listen to me. I got to rewind. Adoration. I, wanna, I, I really want to supplicate right now, but I got to adore you. And then I got to confess and then I give thanks. And then you'll finally listen to me. No, don't worry about that. I mean, if you want to use that model, use it. But just pray. Be you. Don't listen to somebody else pray and say, that's a good prayer. A good prayer is just one that talks to Jesus. Doesn't worry about grammar. Jesus doesn't care if you end your, pre- your sentences with a preposition. Just tell Jesus exactly what you're feeling. Just say, Jesus, blah, and get it out. Start with where you are. Because where you are is going to want to barge through that door into Jesus' presence. Start with where you are. And sometimes all of your needs and all of your problems and all of your cares are just put into small words like help. Sometimes all you can say and all you can get out is help. And you have a Savior and a Redeemer who loves to hear you cry out to Him like that. Alec Motier, one of my, probably my favorite Old Testament scholar, said this. He loves us to talk to him. I love that. Think about that. Isn't that so sweet? Jesus loves us to talk to him. All right, back to the quote. He loves us to talk to him. He says, I want you to tell me. Please open your heart to me. Let me know how you feel. Let me know where you hurt. Let me know what you want. What do you want me to do for you? An essential part of prayer is putting our prayer into words, telling him all about it. Jesus said in one place, your father knows what you have need of before you ask. Well, of course he does. He's God. But he still wants us to ask. So if you struggle with prayer, Alec Motier has just given us a lesson in prayer. Number one, tell God how you feel. Number two, tell God where you hurt. And number three, tell God what you want. Don't worry about acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You can use that if you want to. But if not, just put that aside and say, Jesus, here's how I feel. Jesus, here's where I hurt. Jesus, this is what I want. Where has the brokenness of the world landed on you recently? Where have you felt the effects of Adam's sin, the effects of the fall? Where are you struggling today? Is there pain, sorrow, sadness? It might be physical. It might be depression, it might be a family issue, it might be something at school or at work. Where are you wounded? And where does it hurt? And where are you injured? How has the brokenness of this world landed on you recently? How is your heart breaking this morning? That's exactly where Jesus wants to meet you. That's where he wants to meet you. So let me ask you, What's going on in your world? And number two, what do you know about Jesus? What's going on in your world? And what do you know about Jesus? And then you just pair those two things up. You take what's going on in your world and you pair it up with what you know about Jesus from his word. That's faith. So there's another list to help you pray if you're a list person. Tell Jesus what's going on in your life and then pair it up with what you know about Jesus. 
Jesus. He loves us to talk to him. Jesus says, I want you to tell me. Please open your heart to me. Let me know how you feel. Let me know where you hurt. Let me know what you want. What do you want me to do for you? Just do what Elijah did. Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Fall on your knees and let his grace fall down on you like rain. And when you can't pray, take comfort that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groans that can't be put into words. Romans 8, 26. And take comfort that Jesus is praying for you too. Hebrews 7, 25 says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. That means Jesus is praying for you. You're on the prayer list of Jesus. Jesus lives to intercede for you. Amazing grace. You may live for a million other things, but Jesus lives to pray for you. You have a to-do list? So does Jesus. He lives to make intercession for you, even when you don't pray. Even when your prayer life stinks, He intercedes for you. He prays for you. So there streams forth from him to God the Father the prayer of his love for everyone and every need of those that belong to him. He prays for every one of us. He prays for every one of our needs. And he lives forever as our great high priest. He won't die like the priest in the old covenant. He's a good priest that you can trust. He lives to make intercession for you, Christian. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, meaning he's not like us. He's exalted above the heavens and he lives to pray for you. He offered himself as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God for our sins. Because as sinners, we need a high priest to represent us before God. We need our guilt removed. Because we really are rotten people. And so Jesus speaks to God the Father on our behalf, in our defense, and on the basis of his life, death, and resurrection. And you do realize what Jesus basically says to God the Father, don't you? He speaks the gospel. He talks about the gospel with God the Father. His wounds point to the gospel. They rehearse the gospel together. Jesus rehearses the gospel, if you will, with God the Father through His very presence. His very presence is His intercession for those who are in union with Him. And that's why we rehearse the gospel over and over and over here at Grace. Because this is what the Trinity is rehearsing. Wow. Jesus tells the Father what He's done for us. If all they talk about is the gospel... It makes sense that all that we should talk about is the gospel, right? And it's not that God the Father has to be reminded about this. It's that this is what Jesus does as our high priest. His wounds effectually intercede for our sins day and night, every day of the year, without end, forever. So Christian, that means that Jesus is not your judge anymore. Christian, Jesus is not your judge anymore. He's your defense lawyer now. 
And your defense lawyer is ever pleading for you before God the Father. Even when you don't pray. Even when your prayer life stinks. Even when you're being downright rotten. And that means when your inner lawyer rises up to condemn you. Because you don't pray as much as you do. When your inner lawyer rises up to condemn you because your prayer life stinks. Because you hear a sermon on prayer and you're like, oh gosh. I don't want to hear a sermon on prayer because I haven't been praying. I'm going to feel condemned. When your inner lawyer rises up, you have a defense lawyer and his name is Jesus and he lives to make intercession for you. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Don't leave here today feeling condemned because you're like, my prayer life does stink. I don't pray. I haven't been praying. Don't leave here today feeling condemned, Christian. Leave here feeling loved by your Savior and receive His grace. It's free. It's for people who don't pray as much as they should. It's for people who are sometimes just downright rotten. It's for sinners. Maybe you've never held out the empty hands of faith and come to Jesus. He'll have you. Turn from your sin because you are rotten to your core. Turn from that and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Help. I need you. I believe. His grace is free for sinners. Sinners who struggle to pray. That's good news for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your overwhelming love for us. I don't understand it. I was just marveling at your grace this morning. I could understand, why do you love us so much? How are you so merciful and gracious to us? It's incredible. It's amazing that your grace comes to people like us. It's all because of Jesus because of what he's done through his life, death, and resurrection, because he's interceding before you for us right now. And so we just thank you. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Renew us by your grace this morning. Help us to be a church that gets low before you in humility. God, help us to pray and to just pour our hearts out to you. Thank you that we can do that. Thank you that you listen to us and you're not annoyed by us. May we leave here today just set free. Free to seek your face in prayer. Free to rest and enjoy you this afternoon, God. And may you be glorified and honored as we bring our weak, wobbly prayers to you. May you be glorified in our lives and in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.